Well, the first thing I think he would do would be to stand up and tell the truth. I mean, he had a great expression that was uh, just tell the truth and watch them scatter. So the further away the problem is, uh, the easier it is to postpone action on And that's essentially what we're doing. Be real. Because people in New Hampshire are really cool. I'd say get in the game. This is a problem facing your generation. You have to have a voice in the decision. Welcome to Facing the Future, brought to you by the Concord Coalition on WKXL, New Hampshire's talk radio station. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Each week, we take a nonpartisan dive into topics related to the federal budget, the economy, and how it all affects our nation's future. This week, we'll talk about rebuilding trust in government, and we'll get an update on economic developments with Betsy Stevenson, professor of public policy and economics at the University of Michigan. Concord Coalition Policy Director Tori Gorman will join us for that conversation. Well, Betsy Stevenson, our guest this week, is a labor economist who's published widely in leading economic journals about uh, the labor markets and the impact of public policies on the labor markets and on families as they uh, adjust to changing labor market dynamics. Aside from her work at the University of Michigan, uh, Dr. Stevenson is also a faculty research associate at the National Bureau for Economic Research. And that's a big deal, by the way. And she serves uh, as the executive committee, serves on the executive committee of the American Economic Association. Uh, now, for public policy uh, experience, she served as a member of the Council of Economic Advisors uh, from 2013 to 2015, where she advised President Barack Obama on social policy, labor market, and trade issues. She served as the chief economist for the uh, U.S. Department of Labor from 2010 to 2011. Uh, and in that capacity, she advised the Secretary of Labor on policy and uh, labor policy. And uh, she participated as the Secretary's deputy to the White House economic team. Professor Stevenson, welcome to Facing the Future. Oh, thank you for having me. It's great to talk with you today. Well, I'm joined uh, by our policy director, Tori Gorman, and uh, I want to begin with a recent essay you wrote for the Peter G. Peterson Foundation. They're doing a series on bipartisan policymaking in a divided government, and the title of your essay was Rebuilding Trust is Key for Policymakers to Rise Above Partisan Differences. And you point out uh, that America's faith in Congress is at historic lows. And I wanted to just just begin uh, by asking you, you know, why do you think that is? Why, why has faith in government and other institutions really <laughs> fallen so far? You know, I think it's 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 a complicated question. And one answer is that. Uh, people have really uh, become skeptical of Congress's competency and responsiveness. In other words, they just don't think Congress members solve problems. They see them as arguing with each other rather than uh, solving uh, particular problems. And it, I, you know, I, I can step back a little bit, though, and say, you know, I first started studying trust in institutions in the the Great Recession in the 2008-2009 period. And, you know, we looked at data from around the globe and what we saw was, yeah, there's been a big decline in trust in institutions, but this decline is actually something that would be predicted by 
the declining economic circumstances. In other words, the business cycle, there is business cycle fluctuations in trust in institutions. So people are really happy uh, with institutions when thing when the economy tends to be booming and then they become less happy when we enter a recession. And so our hope was that as we came out of the 2008 recession, our trust in institutions would rebound. And what has been a, just a complete outlier from over the last 10 years is that it didn't. So we saw just a remarkable period of economic growth. We should have seen trust in institutions rebound in a period in which the economy rebounded in a, a quite striking way. And yet, despite the strong economic growth that occurred through 2019, we saw not only do we not see trust in Congress rebound or increase, but we saw it actually fall further. And so I think this marks a really unusual time in which Americans trust in the institutions of the United States, whether we're talking about Congress or the presidency or businesses or courts, um, you know, you can look across the many institutions that shape our society and people have less confidence in them. And I think that that ultimately has something to do with the, the way in which we've become polarized um, and find it hard to agree to disagree and find some sort of compromise so that we can coexist. Um, right. The, the whole idea of a society is that, you know, we each have sort of different visions for how we want society to work, but we come together and we, we come up with the best shared vision possible. I think if you look at what's happening in society today, there seems to be less interest in trying to find common ground on a shared vision for how we're going to live together in a, in a society. Well, you uh, in the <clears throat> before I turning to Tori for a question, I have a quick follow up. Uh, you, you suggest some lessons learned or lessons to be learned uh, in the in the essay. One of them is that political disagreement can can actually coexist with trust and confidence. In other words, you can disagree and still get things done. Um, could you give us some recent examples of that? Yeah, so I mean, Congress can show their competency and responsiveness by doing things. And, and I think that the COVID response was quite remarkable. Um, Congress, uh, even in our really heavily polarized era, um, in 2020, a democratically controlled House worked with a Republican controlled Senate to pass legislation that really prevented widespread poverty and desperation in the face of a public health emergency. And I, that's what we want government to do. Now, it wasn't seamless in the sense that I think the United States, more than many other countries, had a lot of arguing with each other over what was the best way forward during the COVID pandemic. But at the end of the day, Congress passed relief that meant that we did a better job managing the pandemic than we would have done without Congress passing a series of bills that provided support to families. Tori. Yeah, I'd, I'd like to go back with this to the question about distrust uh, in institutions and government in particular. And 
Um, I know that I'm, you know, I, I went to go work in Congress because just like all staffers, we, we felt we had something to contribute and we wanted to help solve problems. Um, and when you look at, for example, the the Great Recession, the financial recession, and and the the bailout packages for the, for the the banks, then I know that there was a lot of anger at that. Um, but I also know that the reason why we didn't have a ton of bank runs during the Great Recession is because of TARP. For example, I used to tell people, "Well, did you put your ATM card into the machine today? Then say thank you, TARP. You know, and did you get money back? You say thank you, TARP." Yeah. So, and I just I find a lot of cognitive dissonance between what. Americans are saying, you know, about their faith in institutions and their faith in in, in the presidency, et cetera, uh, versus what's actually uh, happening. I mean, you, again, you know, there was this big uh, brouhaha over, you know, the bailout for banks during um, the Great Recession. Um, there was a big brouhaha overall. You know, people are upset that, uh, that you know, there are tax cheats everywhere, um, you know, that, that the rich don't pay their fair share. But then Congress just gave a whole bunch of money to the IRS. And suddenly that's really unpopular because now everybody thinks they're going to be audited. And then, you know, uh, you know people... Um, uh, they say that they're very concerned about debt and deficits. Uh, but then when you start talking about things that, you know, here are the big contributors to debt and deficits, here are the things that we need to reform and to cut, they say, oh, no, we can't cut there. We can't cut here. We need to spend more money on this. We need to spend more money on that. So I guess my big question is I see this big cognitive distance, dissonance between what people are saying makes them unhappy and the things that we do to address those problems are just as unpopular, or even more unpopular. So how does an institution like Congress fix that? How does a presidency, no matter who it is, how do they fix that when you've got this, this, this cognitive dissonance between with what people are saying and what they want from government? So this is why I like to talk a lot about trust, because Trust is really about, do you believe that Congress is going to do the right thing, or are you really skeptical? And let's face it, Tori, banking is boring. And <laughs> so most people, they don't really want to know TARP. Like you start talking to somebody at a cocktail party about TARP, a normal person, or, or at your kid's soccer game about TARP, and the next thing you know, they've excused themselves politely because they don't <laughs> want to talk to you anymore. Um, they don't want to hear about it. But what they get told is somebody tells them this is a you know fair deal or this is an unfair deal. This is a good thing or a bad thing. And it really depends on how much trust we have. It, you know, if you think like they're going to do the right thing and i don't really get this tarp business but i trust congress is doing what's right for society then you don't have to dig into the details when you know they're still not digging into the details and that's why you see this cognitive dissonance and it's because they don't trust solutions and what they're doing is identifying you know it, it's like uh, this thing is popular with my my team, and that's why I like it. This other thing is popular with the other team, and that's why I dislike it. Look, one uh, there's a study, and I wish I could tell you the authors, but I I can only remember the study. There's a study I read that I thought was really fascinating, and what it showed was that people's views on policies were more polarized if you ask them to identify their political party before you ask them the views. 
than if you ask them the views without asking them to identify the political party. So if I just say to you like, hey, Tori, I don't know, you know, some people are thinking about we should raise the minimum wage. What do you think? Well, your view is going to be more nuanced. If I ask you what your political, oh, you know, hey, are you a Democrat or Republican? Well, if you say you're a Democrat, you're going to be reminded that the Democrats believe in raising the minimum wage. And so you're going to default into that. If you're a Republican, you're going to be against it. So you're going to be more likely to default into that. And so just that when you talk about cognitive dissonance, it's just that cognitive reminder. Oh, my team likes, you know, what team are you on? And then you're going to default to having policy preferences like that. And I, I think that that is part of the that's why I think there is this real link between trust and the the really sort of vicious partisanship that we've been seeing is because I think people don't trust the other side. And you know, one of the things I said in the essay is like, look, we like we deal with people we disagree with all the time and we manage to get things done. Like you might not like everybody in your office. Uh, you might not like everybody you work with, but you know, you, you manage to work together because you don't dislike them so much you're going to quit your job, right? You figure out how to get along with that person. And um, that, you know, and when we see the humanity in people, there are lots of people who get along really well, even though they have very, um, you know, strong disagreements. Right? If you look at the Supreme Court, there are justices that are very happy to have lunch together, but will never rule the same way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's because they're, they, they're, you know, connecting on that personal level and they've, they're trusting each other to at least do the right thing. They're trusting each other to at least do the right thing by each other. You, you raise in the issue in, in the essay, a couple of opportunities for uh, trust raising. One is, figuring out a way to deal with the debt ceiling. And, uh, and another one is uh, IRS enforcement, uh, which is people are realizing that the uh, IRS is collecting what it's supposed to collect from everybody, then people might have more faith in government as a whole. I mean, I, the, the, the ongoing debate about whether people are paying what they're supposed to pay has got to be making it harder for people to willingly pay what they're supposed to pay. Because (laughs) why should you be the one to pay what you're supposed to pay if nobody else is doing it? Again, there's research on this. If you believe that everybody else is cheating, you yourself are more likely to cheat. Um, And if you believe that most people are honest, then you are most likely to be honest. And I mean, partially, that's a little bit of projection, right? I'm honest. Everybody else should be honest. But some of it's also just like, well, other people aren't honest. So, like, am I? why should I bother being honest? Like, that's so such hard work. And am I the only one doing it? Like, what's the point? I mean, I'm going to tell you, I felt really angry when... I was asked to resign every affiliation I had, including, you know, just with research organizations like the National Bureau of Economic Research in order to serve in the Council of Economic Advisors under Obama. I had to resign everything. I had to sign a contract that said I would not 
uh, have any conversations or work on in any way my textbook. I had to, um, the only thing I didn't have to fully resign was my tenure at the University of Michigan. Um, that was one thing they allowed me to like take an unpaid leave of absence. But every other, I mean, small affiliations, like why does the American public care that I'm affiliated with the National Bureau of Economic Research? <laughs> but the, the Obama administration wanted everybody above reproach, so we resigned everything. Um, and then I see people walk in in the Trump administration and they're not even like stepping away from their for-profit ventures. Mm-hmm. And I felt mad. The president. <laughs> I felt mad. I was like, that's not fair. I gave up a lot. Then, you know, somebody asked me the other day, oh, do you have this memo that you wrote in the White House? And I said, no, we were told we weren't allowed to take anything. And I'm kind of resentful because I don't have anything. <laughs> but I know that it, like everybody else, you know, in the Trump administration took everything. So it changes how you feel about doing the right thing when you think other people aren't doing the right thing. And and that that's why it's really important for social cohesion that we all do the right thing. So when I when I teach this to my students, I tell them that I think trust is a public good. And by public good, I mean in the classic economic sense of it is a good where um, if you are trusting that uh, it's non-rival and um, non-excludable, right? So if you're a trusting person, I mean, you can, I guess, sort of exclude people, but it it is, it, it creates spillovers, lots and lots of spillovers to other people. Because if you trust, then you're going to, everybody you interact with is going to themselves become more trusting and more trustworthy. So the simple act of being a trusting and trustworthy person increases the chances that the people around you are trusting and trustworthy people. But we can easily fall into a bad equilibrium where nobody trusts each other. And unfortunately, that's pretty close to where the U.S. has gotten, because it's not just trust in institutions that's declined, it's interpersonal trust. We may have to continue this in the next segment, but uh, one of the things that you mentioned is the debt ceiling uh, is something that is pressing that they need, they need to find some way to work <laughs> together to do this. So the debt ceiling is not an issue of government spending. It's fine. Have all the debates you want over how much should government spend. The debt ceiling is an issue related to, you know, I, it, we, Congress tells Treasury, here's the bills you're supposed to pay. You need to pay all of them, but you can't pay them if you don't have any money. And what's Treasury supposed to do? It, it can't do all the things that it's being told. And so... The fear is if they don't raise the debt ceiling, then they might fail to uh, to pay things on time. I think our risk of that happening, of what some people are calling a technical default, right? They'll get to the point where they can no longer do extraordinary measures and they will start to uh, to delay payments. Uh, and then all of a sudden Congress will swoop in and raise the debt ceiling. That's a terrible outcome because what it says is, well, the full faith and credit of the U.S. government is less trustworthy than it was before. And the U.S., one of the things we've had going for us is that our government has been the most trustworthy government 
in the globe, in the world, in terms of paying its debt back. I wouldn't give that up lightly because we won't get it back uh, very easily. You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Concord Coalition Policy Director Tori Gorman and I are discussing trust in government with Betsy Stevenson, Professor of Public Policy and Economics at the University of Michigan. We'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Uh, Concord Coalition Policy Director Tori Gorman and I are discussing trust in government and the uh, sad status of that with uh, Professor Betsy Stevenson, a professor of public policy and economics at the University of Michigan. Um, When we took the break, we were talking about the the debt ceiling, and you raised a couple of things about the debt ceiling in the um, in the essay you wrote for the Peterson Foundation that that I don't see very often, and I agree with, and so I'd like to just bring them out. Is one is we should probably just eliminate the debt ceiling to begin with, and I, I know that that sounds odd from a fiscal responsibility group like the Concord Coalition, but I don't see that it does any good, and it does great potential harm. The other thing you said was, okay, well, if we're not going to eliminate the debt ceiling, maybe they could come up with a more effective trigger of what would happen if you reach a certain point, rather than having the government default on its obligations, maybe have an across the board tax increase so we would pay our bills. And I've always thought that that would be a good fallback position. Uh, Obviously, politicians haven't rush to endorse that proposal but what i mean why why does it that make sense to you so so here's the thing i i think that the trigger right now is create chaos in the banking system and have many people who are owed payments from the government either not get them or get them late i don't think anybody really wants that not Republicans, not Democrats, not the American people, but I think they don't really understand it, right? It comes back to this idea of like, how how much knowledge do people have in terms of understanding what would it mean to not pay our debts, right? So they sort of are thinking, you know, the, the, the metaphor that often gets used is, well, if you've maxed out your credit card, the solution is not to raise the credit card limit. So the public thinks of it as like, well, we're raising the limit and they're just going to go out and spend more. But that's not actually what's happening. It's that that they've already gone out and spent it and they've got the goods and now they're saying, I'm going to refuse to pay. And that's not a great system. From the you know, I would get rid of it. I think that there's nothing that's really helpful about it. The people who disagree with that would say, no, it forces a really important conversation about how much we should be spending. I don't agree with that, but that's their argument that like it forces the conversation. So then my response is, well, if we're going to force the conversation, we need a different trigger because what would happen if we breached the debt ceiling? Well, the one thing we know for sure would happen is interest rates would go up and that would mean government spending all else equal goes up because we would spend more money paying interest 
So if the goal is to bring government spending down, you do not want to have a trigger that is going to lead to having to spend more on interest payments. So if we want that conversation when we've borrowed a certain amount of money to say, hey, wait, what are we doing? Are we looking, you know, are we, let's take a good look at our spending and our tax system. Again, and I, I would get rid of it, but for people who want that, then I think what's the, what's a sensible trigger? And a sensible trigger would be across the board tax increases. And I mean, now, now I just got everybody hating on me. I mean, what <laughs> Republicans and Democrats can agree with is they hate that idea. Why do they hate that idea? Because it, it, it could happen. Right. And they all sort of believe that nobody will sink the boat of the United States. So like the debt ceiling breach will never actually happen. But like playing chicken repeatedly with the U.S. financial system seems really, really dumb. Play chicken with taxes across. You know, we have a trigger across the board tax increases. The only that's the only thing that would actually also address truly ad address our fiscal situation because they could do across the board spending cuts as well but as long as they're going to exclude all sorts of entitlement payments or you know non-discretionary mandatory spending if they exclude all of that you couldn't really get it done through mm -hmm. cuts and particularly non-defense discretionary spending so then you got to do it through revenue so you know the they need to think about changing the trigger and i think the fact that they don't want to talk about changing the trigger is really evidence of how dishonest the debate about the debt ceiling truly is um and you know we need some leaders to stand up and you know point out that the emperor has no clothes here this is a terrible risky debate and one way to do that would be trying to change the trigger and forcing the discussion to be around that. Going back to this discussion about the, the 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 debt limit, I think one of the things that excited me about this Congress coming in is that you know we had a divided Congress, but we also had some pretty uh, forcing events uh, in the budget window, the ten year budget window, with respect to Medicare, the the hospital insurance Part A, you know, trust fund, and then of course the Social Security trust fund. You know, the, those those insolvency dates are moving into the budget window, which means that Congress can't you know stick their head under the the, the pillow anymore and say, I don't see you. I don't see you. I don't see you. It's there. It's staring you right in the face. And so I was excited over the, the fact that we had a divided Congress. We had Republicans that were concerned about deficits and debt. And I thought, okay, this is an opportunity where we can have both parties come together, make some tough choices and fix this. And if the debt limit has to be, you know, the, the, the vehicle that carries all that, fine. So be it. Then came President Biden's uh, State of the Union speech. And suddenly we're all standing up for seniors and Social Security is off the table. Medicare is off the table. The defense budget's off the table. Veterans health is off. The so all the things that are actually driving our debt and deficits are off the table. And now all of a sudden we're holding the debt limit hostage over things like eliminating waste, fraud and abuse. And so what do you think we're going to get uh, in terms of savings from from waste, fraud and abuse? And is that where we should be focusing our efforts? <laughs> There, there's no money there. I mean, really, we've spent like 20 years looking under the couch cushions to eliminate waste, fraud and abuse. And the, the reality is people never want to eliminate waste. They want to eliminate fraud and abuse. Waste is about 
like efficiency. How efficient is our tax system? And to really deal with that, what we would need to do is rein in so many of our tax expenditures and people love the tax expenditures but you know that that would be part of it the other thing is just to realize you shouldn't spend every penny you have trying to find the one person who is getting eitc who shouldn't i mean one of the things that frustrates me is now we're arguing over whether the IRS should get more funding so they can go after high income people who are cheating on their taxes. That mm -hmm. costs more money because you actually really need to, ex they, they've got complicated taxes. So you need to go through and investigate them in a complicated way. Do you know who gets, the people who get audited the most, who get targeted the most, are the people who receive the earned income tax credit. You got some grandma who's been raising her three-year-old grandson and then the mom uh is you know takes custody back but then gives it back to the grandma and there's a whole bunch of back and forth and both grandma and mom claim the eitc as if they had that kid and they're not supposed to do that they're not but really are, are those those are the the frauds and abusers we're really trying to go after or the person who got let go in their job and really thought that they were eligible for unemployment insurance but it turns out their employer's like no i let you go because of incompetence and that's not losing your job through no fault of your own so you don't qualify in this state and you know there were a lot michigan was a state that went after fraud and abuse so hard in unemployment insurance that they now had to pay a lot of settlements for people they went after unfairly and incorrectly so i, I you know that's not where the money is the money is in programs that are like medicare and social security and those things have become, or they've always been third rails mm -hmm. and people don't want to touch them. And, you know, it makes the people who want, who are for breaching the debt ceiling, don't want to see social security cut. And uh, you just have to figure out what do you do when these two things don't go together? Mm -hmm. And, and you, know, you know, I, I'm a, I'm a big government person. I like to see a lot of social safety nets. I think social security has been amazing mm -hmm. for older Americans. It means that older Americans have been the least likely group to be in poverty since it was implemented. But we we have one of the lowest tax rate. We're one of the lowest tax revenue countries among the advanced economies. Mm -hmm. And we're not uh, and when it comes to spending and that's our cognitive dissonance you can't choose to not raise the money and then spend it you, you gotta like come together and make the choice and you know one thing i'll say on this issue of like efficiency is you know sweden has one of the highest taxes in terms of its levels but actually it's rated as having one of the most competitive tax systems because there's so few inefficiencies in it. They they are very careful to not layer on multiple taxes on the same activity. They think about, you know, they think about things like what how are people going to behave on the margin with that tax there? And they've moved towards taxes that are just it's just a much more efficient system. 
And that is one reason why they can be successful at raising a lot of revenue to provide safety nets and at the same time uh, not having as much of a negative impact on their economy from those higher tax rates. So it's, it's important to realize it's not all about the level of revenue. It's also how you raise the revenue. That sounds like a good segue to our final segment after this break, where we'll talk a little bit about the economy and, uh, you know, ways that the policymakers affect the economy. You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby, Concord Coalition Policy Director Tori Gorman, and I are talking with Betsy Stevenson, Professor of Public Policy and Economics at the University of Michigan. We'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Concord Coalition Policy Director Tori Gorman and I are talking with Betsy Stevenson, Professor of Public Policy and Economics at the University of Michigan. She's also a faculty research associate at the National Bureau of Economic Research and serves on the executive committee of the American Economic Association. And because of all that, we're talking to her in this segment about the economy. Tori, you want to lead us off? Professor Stevenson, I, I, I should warn you, I know uh, a little bit about econometrics. I'm not a PhD, but I have done some some revenue forecasting in, in my past. So I know just enough about econometrics to be dangerous and, and economic data. And one theory that I've had uh, ever since we sort of came out of the, the COVID recession is that our post-COVID economy is not behaving according to the seasonal norms that we used to experience before Christmas, you know, like the big hiring surge right before Christmas and the big inventory accumulation before Christmas and then the big drawdown after Christmas, et cetera. And I'm wondering if the seasonal adjustment factors, I mean, even just like, and I first noticed it with uh, the hiring pattern or the, the, the job numbers with teachers and in the education industry. And it's like we were getting big uh, job increases because teachers were being hired at, at, at points during the calendar year that just did not coincide with the academic calendar. Um, so I guess my question to you is, you know, as we're trying to make sense of this post-COVID re- economy and, and this recession that's supposed to be coming, that's never coming, and that maybe we're already in it and we just don't know it, um, is the seasonal adjustment factors, is that totally screwing up our economic time series and making it really hard to sort of get a good read on what our economy is doing? Um, So yes and no. So the no is that, you know, over the course of a year, there's no more seasonal factors. So we can look at what happened in 2021. And that now tells us what happened in 2021, right? There's no seasonal adjustment. The month to month stuff is all wackadoodle because of like the seasonal adjustment is off. So, you know, seasonal adjustment sounds like a fancy word. It's just saying like, hey, there's things that we do in regular patterns and those regular patterns can cause enough volatility that we might not see important changes in trends. So let's take out these seasonal patterns. Well, our seasonal patterns are all totally off. Mm-hmm. Um, we're not we're not behaving as consumers in our same seasonal patterns, right? The are we also have new seasonal patterns that reflect the fact that COVID seems to and other viruses seem to wax and wane in different times and we're sort of getting used to that so you know december of this past year there was just like multiple viruses that hit uh schools were shutting down 
because like they literally, I think, uh, you know, they, they, they would literally not have enough teachers and couldn't get enough subs because there were so many, not just COVID, but so many viruses hitting everybody at once. Mm-hmm. So that's going to change. That's a, is that going to be our new normal that December, January are just big viral seasons? I don't know. Um, what, what we saw this past, you know, we're also in a period where we're where that I think that the reallocations that are occurring are so big they're swamping any kind of seasonal pattern. When we went into the pandemic, within a couple months, household spending on goods was above where it had been in 2019, and then it just surged and people gorged themselves buying goods. Those goods purchases meant we had to hire a lot of people into the goods industry, hire a lot of people into the tech sector. We had to hire a lot of people who were providing the things we wanted in 2020 and 2021. What did we not want? Services. We didn't want to see people. We didn't want to go to restaurants. We didn't want to travel. Well, that return to travel, restaurants, dining out, that has actually been a pretty smooth upward trend for the last two and a half years. Morning Consult has a survey called the return to normal and it asks about your comfort level dining out, traveling internationally, on uh, traveling by plane, all these kinds of things. And what's interesting to me is we're still recovering. Those numbers are still showing that they're higher in the last couple months than they were six months ago. So we're shifting away from goods and back to services, and that shift is still going on. Those shifts are bigger than we like to buy presents for people at Christmas. Mm-hmm. And you know what we saw in particularly in retail is like, or in hotels and hospitality and leisure, people might do more around the holidays, so they tend to hire up. But they were so far behind that they didn't let people go in January. And so then that that showed the huge job growth in January, not because there was actually a lot of job growth, but because there was a, not a lot of firing. Right. Not the firing we would normally expect. So it's, I mean, the there's not much to be done about seasonal patterns like predicting the movement of a seasonal pattern is uh, very hard if not impossible and it's particularly problematic in this pandemic time but i'll tell you one thing that i had been watching for years is that every year they would show that um you know we would have enormous hiring of uh, couriers and delivery drivers in December, and then we'd have job loss in January. Well, why? Because they were getting the seasonal factors wrong. Why were they getting the seasonal factors wrong? Every year we buy more online than we did the year before. (laughs) And so every year there would be more packages to deliver in December for Christmas, and then they'd let some of those people go in January. So whenever seasonal factors are changing, and by seasonal factors, I mean just whenever our patterns are changing, it makes it really hard for them to take out average patterns. It's really easy to do if if what we if we're creatures of habit. And the one thing the pandemic did was broke all of our habits. Yep. Well, another thing that's um, kind of been uh, disrupted, I guess you could say, is uh, labor force participation, and um, that's not surprising because we had the big pandemic and people lost their jobs, but it's the recovery from that 
that's been kind of slow. I mean, there have been a lot of jobs created. It's no doubt about that. But the overall labor participation hasn't come back to where it was just prior to the pandemic. And, and you hear a lot of uh, reasons postulated for that. One is just a lot of baby boomers decided to retire early and not come back. Uh, another is that parents find it difficult to access childcare services. And, and then uh, others talk about restrictive immigration policies. So um, how do you see the, the future of the labor force participation? Are we going to, are we just entering a slower period and that's the way it's going to be, or are there things government could do to help? So um, what we've seen is the labor force participation rate of people ages 25 to 54 has completely recovered. In fact, it's higher than it was in 2019. So all the, you know, that's what we call prime age. Um, I'm, I'm getting close to the end of that. So I like other people over will start to bristle. What do you mean? Prime age, <laughs> like, <laughs> but, uh, uh, and people always, I, I always get somebody telling me like that it was so rude of me to call that prime age. And I'm like, Oh, just <laughs> look, I guess it's where we expect most people to be working. Most people not to be retired. Um, so this 25 to 54, their labor force participation is fully recovered. Um, where we've seen real challenges is we had we had watched for decades the labor force participation rates of people over the age of 55 increasing because jobs had become easier to do when you were older and because people's health when they were older had been improving as it was just easier to still be working uh, you know and now what we've seen is fewer people so even if we're not adjusting for the baby boomers, but we do see just fewer 55 to 65 year olds working and we see fewer 65 to 75 year olds working than prior to the pandemic. And we have an aging uh, population, which means there are more people falling into those buckets and those buckets always had low labor force participation relative to the younger buckets. So. We, an aging population means that even if we hadn't had the pandemic, our labor force participation when what we're looking at, the technical you know, release is for people 15, over 15. Uh, you know, so if you have people living to 100 and they're not working, they're in there bringing down our labor force participation. That's why it's important to sort of break it down, I think now by age as the population's aging. Uh, the immigrant issue, look, I, I wish Congress would make it easier for immigrants to come into the U.S. because that would make it easier for us to have a soft landing. If we, you know, every month, we'll see on Friday how many jobs are added. And undoubtedly, if that number is over 200,000, somebody will say, oh, the Fed's got to fight harder so we can have unemployment go up so that we can bring down inflation. We don't need unemployment up. We don't need what we need is more workers to take the jobs to make sure that the jobs don't create additional, the job, the demand for workers doesn't create additional inflationary pressure. How can we do that? We can bring in immigrants. We can, Congress could tomorrow decide that they were gonna help out the hospitality industry by doubling the number of people on temporary visas for this coming summer. It would be enormous. So there are things that can be done I will say, if you look over the last six months, a lot of the, the reason we've been able to have continued job growth with unemployment at a 50 year low is because we have started to see some recovery in 
uh, foreign born working age population. And we are really at the worst parts of the pandemic. We were missing more than 2 million foreign born uh, workers relative to the trend of where we would have been if we had been able to stick with our our pre trend. The, again, I think it comes back to where we started our conversation today. There's just distrust. There's distrust of our government. There's distrust of other people, people who maybe eat different food or speak different languages or look different or live in a different lifestyle. I, we're really in a place where the American people are having a hard time trusting. You know, the, the reality is all people get the vast majority of people get up every day and just want to do the best they can to live the best life possible. They love their children. They love the people in their life. And they just want to be able to put food on the table and have some joy in their day. And if we could realize that most people are not trying to do harm to anybody else, they're just trying to get through their day and live their best life. I think we could start to see some of the benefits of having those people in our life and in our communities. That is a great place to leave it on a positive note. And uh, that's all the time we have for this week. I want to thank our guest, Professor Betsy Stevenson of the University of Michigan for her insights. Thank you also to Tori Gorman for uh, her insights and questions. This is your host, Bob Bixby. Tune in again next week when we'll have another edition of Facing the Future. 